Considering the fact Al said I was long-winded, I thought I would take my time coming up to the, to the pulpit this morning. You know, I'm sinful enough guy that you tell me I'm long-winded, I'm tempted to go 15 minutes longer. So, can we have the, where's Andrew? I need, oh, he's teaching children's church this morning. I need confession again. We need to redo. It didn't take the, anybody ever feel that way? We need a redo on that one. It didn't take the first time. So, I want to repeat one uh, announcement that Andrew gave earlier, and I'm doing this uh, very intentionally because when we do the announcements at 11 or 5 till 11, I think three-quarters of the congregation is still in the narthex, whereas now I believe I have a fairly captive audience. I don't think too many of you are going anywhere, so it's the right time to at least have your attention. You know, today is Sherry's last official day as children's ministry director, and while we'll continue to acknowledge that as a congregation, I think, first of all, we owe her a tremendous round of appreciation for the many, many years. The session met this past week, and we've approved a job description for a new children's director, and I would certainly ask you, as that is a vital position, a significant position on our staff, to keep that in prayer. But one of the things we want to do are, from the session standpoint, our chief desire is that the Lord would see to it to raise somebody up from within our church. So we want to give that the first opportunity for the next uh, couple of weeks to see if any of you might want to pray about this, think about this. And if so, please see either myself or Andrew or one of the elders. We would love to sit down and talk with you. And so I just wanted to kind of keep you abreast of where we are. So that's very important. Please keep that in prayer, as that is such a vital ministry. Let's go to the Lord now in a time of prayer as we turn our hearts and our attentions to hearing from his word and worshiping him this morning. We call this in our liturgy a prayer of illumination, and we do that very purposefully, Father, because we acknowledge that even though we are, as Calvin called the Word of God, spectacles that we're putting on to be able to see rightly your Word without your Spirit applying it, interpreting it for us, telling us what it means, what it looks like in our lives individually and corporately, We acknowledge that without that illumination that the Spirit gives, uh, we could still be blind in our approach to the Word. So it is with dependence as well as with faith that we want to come before you and ask, Father, that you would give us your Spirit, that the Spirit would be your teacher, that you would speak to us, that we would not be necessarily hearing from me, we'd be hearing from you through myself as I deliver your word, and we would come into contact with your holy word. So we believe your word is inerrant and authoritative for our lives. Show us where we need to change, thinking, approach, and transform us by the renewing of our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. We are looking this morning at Psalm 77, so if you have Bibles, I'd ask you to turn them. The words are going to be projected up here. And I know we've been up and down, but I think when we read, I agree with Al having us stand for the Nicene Creed, and I actually think we should stand for the reading of the Word of God. So if you're able, if you're not, that's perfectly fine. Let's stand together as we come with both joy and reverence before God's holy Word. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, 
I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this. To the years of the right hand of the Most High, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Let your footprints, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There is a commercial that is playing right now. You're going to be able to tell that what I do in my downtime is I watch sports. As if you didn't know that already. Once again, one more piece of evidence that, yes, I like to watch sports. There's a commercial that's playing right now. I think it's by Gatorade. And it begins with Michael Jordan. Current day Michael Jordan sitting on the bleachers. And he's looking out over the gym where I guess folks are practicing. And he looks into the camera and he asks the question, You want to know the secret to victory? And of course, I'm going, yes, yes. Commercials normally don't do this to me, but this one I'm like, it's Michael Jordan, folks, up on the sofa. I'll listen to this commercial. And he says, you want to know the secret to victory? And he responds, fail to make the varsity team. Then it pans out and it goes to various other athletes. So you have J.J. Watt, the lineman for the Houston Texans, and he looks into the camera and he says, start your career as a walk-on. And Peyton Manning, talking about his rookie year, he says, go 3-13, and 13, your rookie year. And then Kyle Schwarber of the Chicago Cubs, he goes, spend 108 years as lovable losers. And finally, it's almost like the piece de resistance, the closing of the whole thing is Matt Ryan, the quarterback of the Atlanta Falcons, after last year's, excuse me, very depressing loss, after they were leading 28-3 to at halftime, and they had to lose to, of all teams, the New England Patriots. Can you tell where my loyalty, you know, it's not with New England. Sorry if you're a New England fan. But he looks in, he's, and again, they ask the question, do you want to know the real secret to victory? And Matt Ryan just looks at the camera and he says, defeat. Now, I've seen that commercial, and they must like this commercial because they're playing it over and over and over again. And I watched this commercial, and I had the thought to myself, you know, even the world knows that the prosperity gospel is false. That even the world, because these are not non-Christian, they're not a Christian commercial. If you thought this was a Christian commercial, no. 
But even the world knows that the prosperity gospel, basically the teaching that says if you just have enough faith, just put in enough effort, just try hard enough, things are going to go rosy, things are going to go great, things are going to be awesome. Even the world knows that that's a bunch of bunk. Because here they are calling on the most famous athletes in the world, basically saying, do you want to know what the path to real growth is? The path to really thriving, to really flourishing, comes through defeat. See, we say we know that in the Christian church. We say we know that in our theology. Oh, the prosperity gospel, that's false. Let me ask a couple of diagnostic questions, though, just to get us thinking, how much are we on board theologically in our functional life, how we really live? See, ask yourself, is this why I struggle to pray? And I don't mean get the prayer request off the prayer chain and stop and say a 30-second prayer for somebody. And that's important. Please don't stop doing that. But I'm talking about real prayer that cultivates communion with God, that will draw out and cultivate love of God and neighbor. That's really wrestling with God. To put it another way, does your prayer life bleed intimacy with God? This morning we're looking at Psalm 77. It's a psalm that starts out at first glance, first value. You'd look at it the way it starts, the way it's moving, and you would think that it's a lament. But as we'll see, the psalm somewhere takes a turn, very much a turn for the positive, where the psalmist will come out from focusing on, obsessing with his preoccupation with self, and he'll turn to God. And the key is the word remember. The key is remembrance. And we're going to see that remembrance is not just, what did I do with my phone? What did I do with my car keys? Wait a second, did my wife ask me to pick up something at the groceries? I know I had a list of six things at Publix. Why am I only remembering two of them? That's not what we mean by remembrance. Remembrance is an, an intentional renewal of our bodies and souls, of our being. It, it's likened to covenant renewal. It's why when we come to the table, Jesus, when he instituted this, said, do this in remembrance of me. And John Calvin, not to get radical on you, I know we practice it once a month. Hmm. John Calvin, the radical that he was, he says, every time Christians meet, they should be taking the Lord's Supper. They should be celebrating, excuse me, communion. And in Calvin's Geneva, they met at least three times a week. So how important is remembrance? Because remembrance is the fulcrum. It's the hinge where this psalm turns. And we're going to look at this psalm, and we're going to see that there are two key things we have to remember if we're going to grow. And remember the goal. The goal is cultivating communion with God. Again, quoting Calvin, it's not mere information, it's formation. It's having our lives formed after the image of Christ. Two key things we have to remember if we're going to grow in Christ-likeness, if we're going to cultivate real communion with God. The first is we have to remember the struggle, and the second is we have to remember the source. You notice it almost seems like every sermon, sometimes I prepare during the week and I think, geez, same outline again, it's bad news, good news. And I'm going to tell you again, please don't leave after the bad news. Stay for the good news. There's a way down and there's a way up. You have to embrace and enter into and remember the struggle, and then you have to embrace and enter into and remember the source. Look with me at verse 1. Now look at the struggle here that's going on he, the psalmist begins, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God. And even remembering the struggle, there's faith. 
There's faith because he says he will hear me. So notice here, I think it's not turning to God that would evidence a lack of faith. Turning to God, even in the dark night of the soul, evidences faith. Because we're going to see this is a dark night of the soul for this particular psalmist whose name is Asaph. And we'll look into his background in just a minute. But he says, he will hear me. He says, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. So Asaph is doing at least one thing right. He's not gathering his friends and going to Starbucks and complaining. No, he's processing before the Lord. He is going before the Lord. He says, even in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. He says, in the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. He is having a difficult time. When I remember God, now there's the first use of the word remember. It's still key, but look at what happens at the outset. When I remember God, I moan. I'm lamenting. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled, I cannot speak. All right, first a little bit of background. We read in the title of this psalm that this is a psalm of Asaph. Well, who was Asaph? There are three psalms of David earlier on where our attention is drawn to a particular time in the history of God's people When the Ark of the Covenant, that symbol of the presence of God, was brought to its final resting place, its home in God's city, and this together with an account of the event is recorded for us in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, and it gives details of how David planned the worship of the sanctuary, not only for that day when they were still worshiping kind of at the tabernacle, the temple wasn't built until his son Solomon, but he was planning ahead for the future. And if you read ahead in 1 Chronicles 15, it says, David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals, to raise sounds of joys. So the Levites appointed, and here are the three men, Haman, the son of Joel, and of his brother Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and of the sons of Merari, Merari, their brothers Ethan, the son of Cushiah. So three men were appointed to basically lead worship, Haman, Ethan, and Asaph. So this Asaph, who had a large role in the music of the worship of God's people, is now of chief interest when we get to book three, beginning with Psalm 73 of the Psalter. And from Psalm 73 to 83, they are all written by this particular man, this man by the name of Asaph. And commentators say if you look at the various moods, the tones, the genres of the psalm, you have those psalms that they call hymns, and they call them hymns of orientation. Life is as it should be. It's going well. So the psalmist is praising the Lord. He's blessing the Lord. Then you have what they call psalms of disorientation, the laments. We've looked at them. Have mercy on me, O God, David prayed in Psalm 51. How long, O Lord, David prays in Psalm 13. Those are psalms of disorientation because the psalmist is broken. His life's in trouble. His life's a mess, and he's turning to the Lord. Here, it looks like a psalm of disorientation, doesn't it? I cry aloud to the Lord. I seek the Lord. I'm not sleeping well. Things are going lousy. Except you have that turn that we'll get to, and this makes this particular psalm a psalm of reorientation. A psalm that takes him from just lamenting and being disoriented to reoriented and coming out of self and being able to be preoccupied with and focus on God, which is why we are looking at this psalm under the heading, under the genre of a remembrance psalm. 
the very first thing we have to remember is the struggle. And we have to remember the struggle because we have to remember the goal. And the goal is not simply information or doctrine. Now, doctrine is not just important. It is essential. It is essential. But what I'm talking about here is the goal of doctrine, the end of doctrine. See, false doctrine will never get you to the goal, but it's possible to have true doctrine and not have the goal, and the goal is communion with God. The goal is cultivating a heart for God that will propel itself. What did Jesus say was the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as itself. So the goal of information, the goal of theology, the goal of doctrine is communion with God. And if we look here, obviously, Asaph is in the grip of an impossible situation. We're not told the exact situation, but when you look at it, you can see it's pretty bad. There's no human help that can avail. It seems hopeless to him. It seems impossible to him, but he does one right thing. He turns to God. Yes, he's quite angry with God. He's dealing with his emotions. He's dealing with where he is. But you notice something here? God doesn't strike him down. Instead, God invites honesty. God invites raw honesty. And we have seen this time after time in the Psalms, which gets us back to our goal. The goal of prayer being cultivating communion with God. Listen to how I'm reading a book right now written by a man, the book's title is Life and God, and the, and the man is writing about John Calvin and John Calvin's program of spiritual formation that he taught in his church. And listen to how this writer described Calvin's teaching on prayer. He says, for Calvin, the practice of prayer is a form of communion with God, an intimate developing dialogue in which pilgrims continually pour out their whole hearts, petitioning God for gifts they need, thanking and praising God for gifts they have received, each and every daily circumstance, bar none, is thus reframed as an occasion for intimacy with God via either petition or praise. And so the whole pilgrimage is likewise reframed as a form of itinerant, evolving companionship. He says, in this sense, Calvin casts prayer as a practice of Emmanuel. We might say of God with us at every step a daily discipline by which the Spirit makes us aware that God is always present to us. Thus, we may say that the purpose of prayer is not to inform God, but rather to reform disciples. But of course, we have an issue, don't we? Kind of a problem sometimes, and that is sometimes God seems absent to us, doesn't he? If we're honest, aren't there times where God seems absent to us? One of the things we have to recognize is he is not. But sometimes he will appear as though he is absent to us. And why? To train us. And to train us specifically that we'll cry out to him. As the text says, we will seek the Lord. Even if we're moaning, we will remember God. Even as we'll see in a minute, we're hearkening back to the great times of the past. We will still pursue and follow hard after God. God. God will sometimes apparently, that's a key word here, pull back our felt experience of his presence to get us to move more towards him. And he's doing that to again do what? Reframe us, not just give us information, but reframe, reorient 
our hearts. And the struggle, this is so important for us to understand in terms of practical discipleship, the struggle is a key component of the training. You can't bypass the struggle. And boy, do we struggle with that as American Christians. We want everything to be, just do this and you'll be fine. Just read this book and you'll be fine. Just go to this exercise program. Just do this financial seminar. Just do this. Sometimes God wants us to just enter into the struggle. And we may not like it, but it's part of his sovereign, providential orientation of our lives. We can try to escape it, we can try to move away from it, but it is his will. Look at the text. Look at just some of the text. Verse 2, he says, In the night my hand is stretched out (coughs) without wearying. And then he says again, verse 4, You hold my eyelids open. He's struggling to sleep. Now, I have to admit, I don't know much about this. Evie likes to joke around with me. She'll be talking to me. We may even be in the middle of praying together, and she'll look over in the books on my face. You know, I no, no less get out, good night, I, and before I can even say the words love you, I'm done, I'm out. Where she, on the other hand, really struggles to sleep. She has frequent sleepless nights. And sleepless nights will absolutely play around with your thinking, your orientation, your approach to yourself. Everything just feels off. The psalmist is hearing saying, God, you hold my eyelids open. You're keeping me awake. Then verse 2, he says, my soul refuses to be comforted. In other words, the psalmist here is being so raw, he's saying, you give me a pat answer, I'm not buying the pat answer. My soul refuses to just hear, oh God, you're in control of life. That's good. What does that look like in my life? Enter into my suffering. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Have a little empathy and compassion. Enter in. He refuses to be comforted by pat answers. Then he works through, in verse 3, his first thought, I mentioned this before, doesn't bring him comfort when I remember God, I moan. And then as the text goes on, he begins, verse 5, to hearken back to the past. He says, let me think about the times when I was a worship leader. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. So my spirit made a diligent search. So here he is in distress, not able to sleep, not being comforted. And then he thinks about the past, particularly as a worship leader, songs that he had sung, probably songs of joy that he was singing. And the contrast, think about this. He's sitting here in the present, agonizing, thinking, kind of waxing nostalgic, if you would, reminiscing about the past. And what happens when we're in the present, we're really suffering, we're going through a dark night of the soul, we're agonizing and we think about the past, sometimes it can make us matter, can it? You think about the past, you think about how well things were going, how great things were, and you're kind of going, man, things really stink right now. And look with them at verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? has his steadfast love. And that's that word has said again. He's hearkening back to the covenant. But what is he doing now? He is charging, peppering God with questions, charging him to not be faithful to his very own covenant. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? 
And notice what doesn't happen here. Once again, notice God doesn't strike him down. But instead, as Tremper Longman says, the very presence of this prayer in the Psalms makes it clear that God invites his people's honest and courageous prayers. How's your prayer life? Not just, and the key word here is just. Do I want you to go through your prayer list? Absolutely. But how would you characterize your prayer life? Is it intimate? And intimacy both has a positive and a negative. Intimacy doesn't just, again, it's not all unicorns and rainbows. Intimacy is authentic. It's honest. It's real. How much do you sense the presence of God? Emmanuel, God with us. As Peter put it, we actually participate in the divine nature so that we are always one with God. To be a Christian means literally to be in Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Are you cultivating? And the only way to cultivate communion with God is through the habits, cultivating the habits of things like intense Bible reading, intimate prayer, worship, coming to the sacraments, being honest. How is it with your prayer life? Do you embrace and remember the struggle? Now, this is where I said, okay, we've gone, have we gone down enough? Are we ready? Anybody ready for point two? It's time to move on to the next point. Look with me at verse 10. And again, we're not told exactly, and we're not told, maybe no circumstances changed. But he says, then I said, I will appeal to this. So he's speaking to himself here. I will appeal to this. In the years of the right hand, and what does the right hand of God mean? The right hand of the Most High, he is appealing to the power of God. The right hand or the right arm of God is a symbol of God's power, his might, his strength. And notice the key words here. Again, we're not seeing a circumstantial change, but we're seeing a transformation by the renewing of his mind and specifically renewing his mind in remembrance. Because he goes, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of all. I will ponder at your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And that leads him to say, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. Notice the change that comes from the hinge of remembrance, from a preoccupation with self to a preoccupation with God. He remembers God as the source. He remembers him the source of power, but he even gets more concrete, more specific. So he's remembering God's great acts in history, the years of the right hand of the Most High, but he now proceeds on to remember something very concrete and very specific. Again, as Tremper Longman writes, he says, rather than concentrating and obsessing on his present condition, he resolves to look to the past when God worked his miracles of rescue. He focuses on God's concrete saving acts, and it is this to which Asaph will now concentrate his attention. Verse 15, he says, you redeemed by your mighty arm the children of Jacob and Joseph. And where did he do this? Where did he redeem the children, the descendants of Jacob, of Israel, and Joseph? It was the Exodus. The Exodus was God's salvation par excellence. 
in the Old Testament. It was the paradigm of salvation, of liberation, of deliverance, of rescue. And the focus here, as you look with me at verse 16, is the crossing of the Red Sea. Because the psalmist, and remember the psalmist's poetry, so he's poetically, he's personifying the waters. He says, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, what did they do? They were afraid. Because what did God do with the Red Sea? You have to hearken back. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. One commentator put it back in Exodus 14. God instructs Moses to turn back and camp in a place in an area that was seemingly very vulnerable by the sea. When Pharaoh and his chariot troops charge Israel, Moses raises his staff, symbolizing, once again, Emmanuel, the presence of God. And the sea opens up, allowing Israel to go through, but then closes on top of the Egyptians. In this act, God saved his people when they were in distress and completely beyond any human help. The psalmist Asaph now imagines himself in an analogous situation, but then by focusing on the Exodus, remembers that his God is a God who saves in impossible situations. Friends, very, very concretely, very specifically, you don't want to remember the power of God in general. You need to remember and enter in and drink deeply from the power of God, very specifically in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because, see, what happens is the waters in the Old Testament symbolized something in the ancient Near Eastern world, symbolized chaos, turmoil, deep darkness. And see, what happened here is that God leads his people through, and here's the chaos, and what do they do? They fall on the Egyptians. But you've got to remember that the Exodus is pointing forward, that as we look back from this side of the cross and the resurrection, what do we see? We see that there was one true Israelite, one true Israelite whose name was Jesus, who wasn't led safely through the waters. We need to see the exodus pointing forward to a greater and more permanent exodus that Jesus led us through. And how did Jesus do it? For Jesus on the cross, what did he do? He went through the deepest darkest darkness. He went through the deepest waters, the deepest chaos, the deepest turmoil. And like a flock, like a shepherd of a flock, he led us through. What does Jesus himself say about the good shepherd in John chapter 10? He lays down his life for the sheep. And he says, nobody made me do this. Nobody forced me to lay. I did it of my own volition, of my own accord. And so for Jesus on the cross, he went through the deepest darkness, the ultimate chaos, and the waters of chaos were brought down upon him. The waters of tumult and the waters of chaos and the waters of darkness fell and were allowed to come crashing down upon him thus saving and rescuing us. And it is only in the depths and to the depth that you remember the gospel, that you see your need to remember the gospel, that you will grow in love of God and love of neighbor. 
The waters came down upon him so that they would never ultimately come down, so that no matter what dark night of the soul you're going through, and it may be horrific, it is still only temporary. It is at worst temporary. Remember our commercial that we began with? What is the secret to victory? I hate to say this, but Michael Jordan got it right. It is defeat. It is failure. Or apparent defeat, or apparent failure. See, in the first century, there was no greater punishment. No punishment that would bring more shame, more mocking, not just physical torture, not just physical agony, but to a first century Jewish person to be crucified on a cross was actually to be cursed by God. You were cut off. You were cursed by God if you hung on a cross. In the Roman scheme of things, that would be the worst type of execution you could go through. In a Jewish mindset, what kind of Messiah would come and walk on water and feed 5,000 and turn water into wine and raise the dead? But if he went to a death on the cross, in the Jewish mindset, that Messiah was a failed Messiah. That Messiah was a failure. But what happened three days later? That was only apparent defeat, apparent failure, because Jesus was raised from the dead. And friends, if you are a Christian, it is only through Christ's defeat, only through that mocking, agonizing, torturous shame, the waters coming down, crashing upon him, that you walk safely through. Living in the victory of the resurrection, cultivating communion with the triune God of love who wants to speak love, even in the midst of your struggle, he wants to speak love to your heart. The resurrection means an eternity of cultivating communion with a triune God of love who will go through anything not to lose us and to always be Emmanuel, God with us in and through everything. Will you remember? Do you remember? Not just the struggle, but the source. And not just the source of power, but the source of salvation. And the source of salvation in its fullness. Yes, that includes forgiveness and justification and adoption, but also includes every aspect of shalom, resurrection life, beginning and inaugurated now one day to be consummated, to be given in its fullness. Will we remember? We're about, Father, to come now to the Lord's table. And I pray, Father, in our coming to the Lord's table that you will help us to remember, that you will renew our lives, be merciful to us, to quicken to us all that Jesus did for us. We pray, Father, that you would teach us to remember our struggle, to not be afraid to be honest and real before you, but then to remember the source. To remember the source not just of power, not just of a mighty right arm, but a mighty right arm that extends his right arm in order to rescue and save. Help us to remember in Jesus' name. Amen.